Hey, this evening uh, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 18. Let's uh, go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for, Lord, just the opportunity to come and worship you. To be able to just lift our voices and to declare your majesty. And Father, you love us with an everlasting love. You have invited us into your very presence. And Lord, you've instructed us to come just as we are, bring our sin to you, and confess it. So we enter now into a moment of reflection and the private confession of our sins. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in the shed blood of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we come now to your word, God, we ask that you would just speak powerfully, minister to each one of us, bless us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter, the book of Isaiah, as we continue our study through the word we have recently looked at the proclamation against moab and the coming judgment uh, against moab and and then there was the proclamation against uh, syria and against israel and now in this 18th chapter we see that the lord is going to speak isaiah is going to write about Ethiopia. And so we begin here in verse 1. It says, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. So the land of buzzing wings, we see that Ethiopia has its jungles uh, in it and the flies. And so the constant buzzing of the flies, the buzzing of the wings. And so it's addressed to the land that is buzzing with uh, wings and Today, that would be the, the, the nation of Kush, modern-day southern Egypt, Sudan, northern Ethiopia. This is the, uh, the area that we are talking about. And, and we notice there that it says in vessels of reeds, uh, sends its ambassadors by the sea. And that's really the Nile River, the ambassadors uh, coming from Ethiopia up into Egypt in the, the vessels of the reeds. And uh, and so, like Egypt, Cush is divided uh, by rivers and by branches of the Nile. In verse 3, it says, All inhabitants of the world and dwellers 
on the earth. When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. So uh, here we see the territory of Cush represents now all the peoples of the world that desire to see the Assyrians fall. The Assyrians put a heavy labor upon the people, and, and so they were the world power. And, and so the people were seeking relief from the Assyrians. And the Lord promised through Isaiah that when the time would come to fight the Assyrians, that they would know it and that they would see the enemy fall. When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. In verse 4, For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest, and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs, with pruning hooks, and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. We see that the Lord is telling Isaiah that he is going to wait until the proper time to cut off the enemy. And Isaiah had already been given the reason for this. Now, this is a, a reference now to the destruction of the Assyrian forces. And it takes place uh, before summer, while the grapes are still sour, still being formed. God is going to cut off the Assyrians. And, and they would be destroyed, they would be killed, they would be left on the mountain for food for wild birds in the summer and wild animals in the winter. And, and so you will remember that this now literally is fulfilled when the Assyrians come around Jerusalem. They have come to lay siege to it and to destroy God's holy city. And we see that God allowed the Assyrians to move and to uh, capture the various towns and villages. But when it comes to Jerusalem, we see the apple of God's eye. We see God's defense uh, of Jerusalem. And you'll remember that, uh, that the Assyrians come with 185,000 plus soldiers uh, and they encamp. So imagine how large an army that is, the terror that that would bring upon you as, uh, as a person that's dwelling in Jerusalem. And of course, they go into the city and they close it. But now there is this huge army that is gathered around. And God has told through Isaiah that not to worry, that God is going to go before them. God is going to fight for them. Now, when the Assyrians would start to come, you would seek to make alliances because no one was strong enough to protect or to defend themselves against the Assyrians. They were the, the world power. And God was telling the, uh, the nation of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem, put your trust in me. I am the Lord your God. And 
they had become self-reliant. They had become self-insufficient. They started to look to protect themselves and to defend themselves. And, and so God is constantly reminding them that he is their salvation. He is their strength. He is their deliverer. I think so oftentimes in our lives that that, that is a reminder for us as well where we see how God has delivered us in the past. We see the trials that he has faithfully brought us through, but yet in the current trial that we are in, we begin to try and extract ourselves from the trial instead of turning to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, resting in the Lord, recognizing that the Lord is our salvation. Nation of Israel is trying to make alliances with different countries to try and form protection against uh, Assyria. But God says, I am your defense. And so Assyria comes and they surround Jerusalem and God sends an angel and one angel in one night wipes out 185,000 soldiers are just destroyed uh, overnight in the camps as they surrounded in Jerusalem. And so those bodies here, it's talking about that, that the army will be food for the birds uh, and all this speaking of the judgment that is going to come. In verse 7, in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. So after the Assyrian army is wiped out by the angel of the Lord, we see that the people of Cush, they come now and they bring an offering. They bring their gifts to the Lord there at Mount Zion. And, and so we see that there is both a, a short view on this and a long view on this. Ultimately, Isaiah is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ where all nations and peoples are going to come and bring their gifts now to the holy city, to the Lord. The Lord is going to be worshipped uh, there and he is going to rule in righteousness from Jerusalem. And so we see that this is also a foreshadowing of uh, the millennial reign of Christ. But in the short term, we see that this also speaks of the, the gifts that the land of Cush comes and brings to the Lord after the Lord destroys the Assyrian armies. In chapter 19, we are going to see now these uh, oracles or proclamations uh, against uh, Egypt uh, here. Verse 1, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And so this is a, an oracle, an oracle for Egypt. And it says the Lord rides on a swift cloud. And so God is pictured here kind of a, a typology of, of riding on a swift cloud. Now in Canaanite mythology, this same idea is used of Baal. He's the god of rain and fertility, but the Lord is not Baal. We see that he is the true giver of rain and fertility. And so the gods of Egypt uh, 
though they were many, were not able to save their people from the coming judgment uh, that God is going to bring against them. The idols of Egypt will totter. And so their idols are going to tremble before them and would cause the people to be disheartened and, and downcast. In verse 2, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against uh, his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against uh, kingdom. So we see a civil war here is predicted uh, for Egypt, this internal strife. This happened, uh, uh, literally had its fulfillment. Uh, Verse 3, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council and they will consult the idols and the charmers mediums and the sorcerers and the egyptians i will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them says the lord the lord of hosts so a fierce king is going to rule over them the assyrians uh, uh, their empire their king egypt for centuries uh, before had been a cruel taskmaster over israel and the, the bible says to be careful what you sow for what you sow you will most assuredly reap and so they had been the taskmasters over the uh, the israelites and and they were cruel and now we see that what they sowed they themselves end up reaping as the assyrians uh, dominate the egyptians and and take them uh, over there was a tremendous lordship uh, over them so this assyrian king is ershaddon who conquered egypt in 671 bc so we see the the history fulfilling the very things that isaiah was talking about now when The Assyrians conquered Egypt. They divided Egypt into 20 provinces. And he set an Assyrian over each one of those 20 provinces uh, with the order to plunder and destroy. So the cruel lord that was set over them, plunder and destroy this section. And so these 20 lords that were put over them. Verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea. And the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn. And those will lament who cast hooks into the river. And they will languish who spread nets on the waters and so we see that there is going to be a, a drying up uh, of uh, the waters and uh, and so there are those who see in this the the building of the Aswan dam as a uh, as a fulfillment uh, of this but we see that Egypt lost much of its untillable land as a result of the Aswan dam and they now have gained by irrigating new territories that were once arid so we see that overall they thought that they would dam the water so that they could channel it and irrigate more but in doing that they ended up with a net loss of actual acreage that they are able to grow and so the waters shall fail from the sea 
What happened with the Aswan Dam is, is that as they dammed up the water, the salt water from the ocean started to flood inward and upward. And so, whereas before the flow of the river kept the salt water out, now the salt water incurred because of the dam, and now all of that territory and land became unpotable in its ability to be planted. And so, we see that the river is wasted and dried up and is far away. The fishermen also will mourn. There in the Mediterranean, there was a tremendous abundance of fish. It was a large and very prosperous fishing industry. But as the Nile brought its soil and the nutrients in from the river, the fish thrived there. And so there was a healthy fishing industry, which now has been totally wiped out as a result of the Aswan Dam because now the nutrients aren't flowing down. And so... There is not the abundance of fish. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken and all who make wages will be troubled of soul. So fine flax, we see that this may be a reference to the linens and to the fine cottons and, and beautiful linens, of course, that Egypt is so famous for. We see that uh, that there would be a languishing uh, of that. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against uh, Egypt. So, we see that Egypt was well known for its wisdom, for its writings, and for its uh, wise men. But we see that Isaiah warned Egypt not to count on their wise men to save the nation from the coming destruction. We see that the officials of Zon, a, a city in Egypt's delta, the wise counselors of Pharaoh there, through their wisdom, they thought that they could save them from the coming judgment. And so, here we see that there is a prophetic challenge that is set forth. God challenges them through the book of Isaiah to declare in advance what God is going to do. In other words, uh, let them give some prophecy. Let them reveal something that has not yet happened, something that is going to happen. And, and once again, we see over and over, the fact that the prophetic aspect of the Word of God is what sets the Word of God apart from any other holy writings of any other religion. Here we see God challenging the wise men of Zoan. Can you declare the things that are going to happen? If so, declare it. Tell us what, what is going to happen. The Bible says, who no, can know the mind of God? And, and so we see the incredible wisdom of God, the foreknowledge and how God stands outside of time. And so we see that the Bible is almost half in prophecy where God speaks of yet future things. And Jesus says, Now I've told you these things before they come to pass, so that when they come to pass, that you might believe. And so we see that God's intent for prophecy in the Scriptures is that you may believe that you might know that you know that you know that what you are holding in your hand is absolute truth. 
that it is revealed by God, that it is trustworthy, that you can build your foundation upon it. When you are going to construct anything, you need your cornerstone, the, the foundation upon which everything else is going to be built. If that foundation stone is, is weak or shifts or cracks or breaks, and then the entire structure that has been built with that uh, as your reference point, that and building and that construction is going to fail. So when you build a life, what is the cornerstone of your life? What is the cornerstone that will not fail, that will never crack, that will never crumble? And, and that chief cornerstone we see is the, the Word of God and the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and He was in the beginning with them. Jesus said, I am the living Word. And, and so we see that Jesus is the revelation of God. He is that truth. He is the cornerstone upon which we can absolutely build our lives. And, and so here, God is asking that they've got these wise men in Egypt. Their reputation goes out and, and the whole world speaks of the wisdom. And God now challenges them. You have great wisdom. Can you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? Next week, next month, next year? And they have no knowledge. Only God can see into the future. Only God stands outside uh, of time. And so, verse 13, the princes of Zon have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt and those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled perverse spirit in her midst. Uh, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branch, or bulrush may do. So the princes of Zon, it says, have become fools, and the princes of Noph are deceived. So these princes uh, encouraged, uh, it is thought that they encouraged the Egyptians to rebel against the Assyrians. And so... As the Egyptians rebelled, they suffered the consequences uh, of it. It says that they will be as a drunken man who staggers. No, no one in Egypt could do anything to avert the destruction. They were like staggering drunkards uh, before the Lord. Neither the leaders, the head and the palm branch, nor the, the people, the tail and the reed could hold back God's judgment. And at one time, Zon was Egypt's capital city, Memphis on the Nile, about 20 miles from Cairo, uh, north of Cairo, was the first capital of the United uh, Egypt and one of the major cities during much of its long history. In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over in the land of Judah, will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. So we see in that day, and in that day means that we're moving prophetically future. When you see in that day in the scriptures, that typically means that this is prophetic of something that is yet to happen. We see here that 
in contrast with Isaiah's day, uh, Judah was thinking about and turning to Egypt for help. A time will come when Egypt will recognize Judah uh, as the dominant world force. And this again is when Christ reigns in the millennial reign. The entire world will bow down and recognize that he is the king of kings and the, the Lord of lords, that he is Lord over all. And so here Isaiah is writing to Judah and Judah is fearful of the Assyrians and, and here are the Egyptians and they're seeking to and thinking about going to Egypt for help. And here we see that God is telling through Isaiah, the, the nation of Israel, you're considering going to Egypt for help. But here's what I want you to know that there's going to come a time when the Egypt is going to recognize you as the greatest power that there is. The power behind Israel is God. And so here we see once again that, that there is this declaration. The Egyptians will be like women. So Egypt will be in terror of Judah because they realize that Judah is under the uplifted hand or the strength of the Lord God Almighty. Then that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, and one will be called the city of destruction. Now, the five cities in Egypt here represent the rest of the nation. To speak the language of Canaan, we see that this doesn't mean that the Egyptians will stop speaking their own language, but Rather, because of their new worship and offering sacrifices in Jerusalem, uh, they will now be fluent in Hebrew. And, uh, and so, the city of destruction. This has caused much debate, trying to identify it, it seems, uh, to follow the reading preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the city of the sun uh, and that instead of city of destruction, it can also mean city of the sun, which means the Heliopolis and Heliopolis was one of the major cities in the south end of, uh, of Egypt's uh, delta. And it was dedicated to the worship of the uh, sun god. Verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord. In the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. So in the future, Egypt is going to turn to the Lord, uh, probably during the tribulation period as they see the judgments of God. Uh, upon the earth as they see the movement of the Antichrist who will actually move against the Egypt and uh, passing through Egypt when he gets into Ethiopia is when the word is going to come that China and, uh, and the kings of the east have now gathered their troops to invade the western countries and he is going to turn and bring his troops back to meet them in the uh, valley of Megiddo, the battle of uh, Armageddon. And that battle is going to be fought right there in the Jezreel Valley. And, uh, and so 
tremendous crossroads of ancient trade routes and a, a strategic military site, the scene of many ancient battles. Many, many battles uh, have been fought there. And so the Egyptians are going to cry unto the Lord, it says, and he will deliver them. And then the Lord will be known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make a sacrifice and an offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. Now, this is almost uh, unbelievable for the people of Judah in Isaiah's day. But it is going to happen when the Lord returns and establishes uh, his millennial kingdom. And so it says, interesting phrase that we have, that he will strike and heal it. That he will strike and heal it. And so what that really means, you look at and understand, is that's really the way that God works with us as a child of God. We, uh, we see that the Bible says that if you spare the rod, you will that you will spoil the child and and we see that there is uh, now the uh, the turning of a child's heart through the uh, the use of discipline that is always the proper use of discipline and the purpose is to turn the heart uh, away from the actions uh, or the habits that uh, that they are involved in as a child of God God is going to correct us have you ever noticed as a Christian you don't get away with anything? <laughs> it seems like non-believers get away with everything. And, and believers now, once you're, once you're a child of God, now you are going to be corrected. And, and the Bible tells us to not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord when you're rebuked and, and you are corrected. God is, is seeking to continue to heal you through correction. He's trying to change the outcome of the fruitfulness in your life. And so pruning and disciplining and, and all is not pleasant. But we see that the outcome of it is profitable. And no chastening seems comfortable at the time, but... Uh, but it is profitable in our life. And so here we see that he will strike and heal. And, and so here we see that uh, the principle of God working in our lives. We want to be yielded and surrendered and, and not stiff-necked and fighting against the, the will of the Lord. When God is trying to instruct us and teach us, so we want to be able to have a teachable spirit to, with him and and not be stubborn and not be prideful and not want, want what we want, but that surrender of the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And, and so when God is trying to minister to us, and, and even through difficult and painful circumstances, one of the things that I always ask God is, God, help me to be a quick learner. <laughs> I don't want to be disciplined any longer than I, uh, than I need to be. And the other thing that I absolutely know about God is that God always uses the least amount of force necessary. He, he is gentle in that aspect uh, of he knows exactly the amount of force to use to redirect you. 
And that's what God is seeking to do, is to redirect you, to turn you away from the things that are causing you to depart from intimacy with God. God is jealous for us, and he does not want to lose the intimacy uh, with us. And, uh, and so we see that he is constantly seeking to help us. Here we see that even sometimes that that help comes uh, through that discipline, through that rod, but always it is not punishment for punishment's sake. We see it as discipline in order to correct our hearts and to draw us nearer unto him. In verse 23, it says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Syrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And, and the situation here we see is not limited to Egypt and Assyria and the rest of all of the earth are going to be the recipients uh, of blessing in that day. And that is in the millennial reign of Christ. I cannot wait for the millennial reign of Christ. I cannot wait to see the earth underneath the government of righteousness. There won't be any elections. <laughs> there aren't going to be candidates and caucuses and debates and, uh, and uh, all. We're, uh, we're not going to have to decide on political philosophies. And, uh, and then we see that the Lord himself is going to rule and reign. And he will rule and reign in absolute righteousness. And how beautiful the earth, finally now, we are going to see it the way that God had created it. The lion is going to lie down with the, with the lamb. And underneath his administration, we're going to have peace and unity. We will not have war. The implements of war will be beaten into plowsheds. And, and we will experience now the peace that only comes when God is leading and when we are surrendered and submitted to God. And so that millennial reign, the glorious millennial reign of Christ. In that day, Israel will be one of three, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In Isaiah's day, Judah was uh, hoping that Egypt would save them from the Assyrians. Uh, but in the millennial reign, we see that Assyria, Egypt, and Israel will have this harmonious, peaceful relationship underneath the hand of God's blessing. And and so how mind-boggling this prophecy had to be from Isaiah in that day when Assyria is threatening everybody and Israel is thinking about running to go get help from Egypt to protect them from Assyria. And Isaiah is saying, you know, there's coming a day when all three of us are going to dwell together in harmony underneath the, the hand of the Lord. And, and how difficult that would have been for them to even begin to possibly comprehend to, at the time that this is written. We see that once again, the promise to Abraham that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through him. All the nations of the earth. 
are going to be blessed when the Messiah is ruling and reigning in righteousness over the whole earth. And again, Messiah comes through Abraham and is the Savior of the world. Isaiah chapter 20, we see that Judah wanted that alliance now with Egypt and with Ethiopia and to stave off the Assyrian threat. But we see here that in Isaiah chapter 20, the, the Lord is going to show them the foolishness of uh, such a course uh, of action. In verse 1, In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and, and took it. Now, Tartan is not a proper name. Tartan is a title. Uh, and it's the title of a commander-in-chief. So in this case, it's the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian army underneath the rule of Sargon. And so Tartan, or the commander of the chief of the army, uh, and we see in 711 B.C., Ashdod, which was a Philistine city, one of the perennial enemies, uh, the Philistines, were the perennial enemies against the Israelites. Uh, and... And here we see that uh, now, 711, it was captured by the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian king Sargon. And the capture of Ashdod was to signal to uh, those that were in Judah that they could not count on foreign alliance to protect them. For the Assyrians uh, believed that uh, now their armies and it could not be stopped. And Verse 2, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. So Isaiah wasn't completely naked. You know, the picture of a prophet of God, completely naked. We see that that he just has his outer cloak, his outer garment of sackcloth, uh, which was also the attire of Elijah, you will remember. And so uh, here we see that both Isaiah and Elijah had similar attire. But now take off the sackcloth, the outer uh, garment, uh, and take off your sandals. And then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of uh, Egypt. And, and so this object lesson here was to show now how the Egyptians and, uh, and the people of Cush would be treated by the victorious Assyrian forces. The Assyrians, when they would capture you, would uh, march you back into Assyria, and, and they were a brutal people. They would put fish hooks through your lips and nose and, and tether you to a line and pull the and people along. They would strip them naked and uh, have them march naked and tethered with fish hooks uh, holding them um, together. And it was a, a type of 
of mental warfare to, uh, that they were employing to where the people were so afraid of the Assyrians and of their cruelty that many times that they would not even fight against them. They would just simply uh, surrender. And, uh, and so here we see that, uh, that now the, the proclamation from Isaiah to declare this uh, object uh, lesson that for these three years he was to walk around without his outer garment on. And of course, this would capture the attention of the people. This is a dramatic, uh, dramatic statement that that was happening. And so they would seek to understand why. What is it saying? What is what does this mean? And so uh, this was one of the ways that God would get the attention. This was before they had social media. <laughs> so the prophets were doing these things now to be able to uh, to capture the attention uh, of the uh, of the people. It says in verse 5, then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation in Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? And so we see those that were in Judah thought that an alliance with these countries would help them. But then once these things happen, they are going to be ashamed. They're going to realize that if Egypt and Cush uh, have fallen to Assyria, then they have no chance uh, for escape. And, and once again, what was the, the problem was the heart of Judah. God had done great and mighty things for them. He had taken them out of Egypt. He, he had showed that his hand is stronger than the most powerful army on the face of the earth. That was an object lesson. That if God be for you, what? Who can be against you? Even the greatest military might, the greatest army on the face of the earth is nothing against the hand of God. And yet we see that there is this constant self-reliance, this constant tendency to, to take our hearts and to put them into the things that we can see instead of trusting what we can't see. Trusting in the in God that loves us, that has time and again demonstrated that He is who He says uh, that He is. And they were neglecting God. What was causing them not to trust God? Fear. Fear is what causes a person to distrust or to let go of faith. Faith and fear, they are inversely proportional. They are mutually exclusive. The more faith that you have, the less fear that there is. The more fear that you have, the less faith that you have. And it's this sliding scale. And I have found that God is constantly seeking to strengthen you and to mature you in the ability for your faith to continue to sustain you even in greater and more frightening trials that you might go through. I like when the disciples said, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we believe. 
we, we've got the faith, but help the part of us that's, uh, that's fearful, that, that, is the, that is challenging the, the ability to walk by faith. The question that I would pose for each and every one of us, since God has us in the gymnasium faith, He's trying to get you to bulk up. He's trying to get you to increase your faith, your ability to have your strength. And your strength is in your ability to trust in the Lord. That's where our strength is. Amen. Amen. And so that's our strength. And, and so our faith rightly connected to God. And I won't be afraid. I won't be afraid. I'll keep my eyes firmly fixed on you. I will trust you with my entire life. And so this now becomes the, the strength that is in our life. Not our ability to be able to deliver ourselves from any circumstance or in situation. Now, does that mean that we just simply pray and do nothing else? No. We pray and then we do everything that we possibly can, trusting that the Lord is now going to move and intervene. But we're not trusting in our actions. If a person has a broken leg, you pray. We pray for it. Lord, we pray for your broken leg. And if he doesn't miraculously heal it, we send you to the hospital. <laughs> because why? Because he's given us the wisdom of healing through the doctors, right? So wisdom tells you to use the, the hospital and the medical community to be able to deal with your health issues. But our trust isn't in the doctor. Our trust is in God. And God is going to work in through the doctors. He's given us that wisdom. That's where it says that we're to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And so we do everything that we can, that we know to do, that where wisdom is in operation, but we're not trusting in wisdom. We're trusting in the God that is behind the wisdom that is in our life person says i don't have a job i'm just praying i said what you're just sitting in your house praying <laughs> now what does wisdom say if you want a job you need to do what get out there and go apply and put yourself and get an application and go but we're not going to trust in the getting out there where we are going to get out there and do everything that we can and we're going to pray god lead me to the right job lord help me to the right place give me favor in the interview that i that i am going to and so we have faith that's in action it's not a faith that is just a stationary faith where where we just sit there and expect that you know the blessings are just going to fall out of heaven you know upon us while while we are just doing nothing and so there is this line between action and faith so god wants us active he wants us doing everything that wisdom tells us is is the proper thing to be doing but our trust isn't in wisdom our trust is in the lord we're putting our faith not, uh, not in this new job website that's going to reach so many more mm, people. And it, and it might. And it might be a great mm, website. But our trust is that the Lord's leading us to that website to put our application because he knows exactly where, uh, where he wants us to end up already. And so it circles back once again mm, to the Lord. What area in your life are you being challenged by God right now to trust Him? To trust Him? He will continually take us and lead us into those faith-stretching 
circumstances that are in our lives. And he is continuing to, just like with the nation of Israel, seek, are we going to run to others and to self? Are we going to try and make alliances to defend and to protect and to get ourselves uh, through things? Or are we going to trust in the Lord? Does that mean that we don't turn to others? We absolutely turn to others. That's the wisdom part again. We, there is wisdom. The Bible tells us not to isolate and that we're to humble ourselves to one another and that two are better than one. For if one should fall, the other is there to, to help them to stand up and, and to rise up again. The difference is we're not putting our trust in those mechanisms. We see that our trust is in the Lord. So our faith is in the Lord. God, you're going to lead me. You're going to help me. In you, I will trust. The nation of Israel had this incredible history behind them of how mighty God had demonstrated himself. And I remember reading one time, and it has stuck with me ever since, that, that the faithfulness of God in the past demands our present trust in him today. His track record in the past compels us, demands us to, to put our trust uh, in him today. Sometimes that's, that is such a challenge. That is the battle right there, is to be able to put our trust, to be able to keep our faith, keep holding on by faith uh, to the goodness of God. Life can get scary. And it's like walking on a high wire without a net <laughs> underneath it. And the Lord says, don't look down. Just keep looking at me. I got you. You just keep walking. You just keep on walking. You say, but look at, what if I fall? Look at all the danger that is around me. And God says, I have you. And I will walk this through with you. And all things work together for good. And there are times when circumstances in your life are going to challenge that verse. All things work together, pastor, all things. When I went through this in horrible circumstance, when this great travesty is taking place, when there is injustice that I am having to battle in my life, how, how can all things work together? Because God is refining your character. He is purifying your faith. He is teaching you to depend upon him through those circumstances. Those circumstances are just instruments in the hand of God as he is tooling your faith. When we see each other, we say, how are you feeling? But as believers, we should really say, how's your faith doing? <laughs> how's your faith doing today? What's the condition of your faith? Because if you'll tell me the condition of your faith, I'll tell you how you're doing. <laughs> I'll tell you how you're doing. So the nation had lost sight of the Lord. They started running about to and fro to try and secure for themselves uh, defenses and alliances. And, and we see God is saying, I am your defense. I am your alliance. I am all you need. Stop running around and just come to me. And I think that's a good word for every single one of our, <laughs> of our hearts to uh, stop letting our hearts run to and fro being pushed around by anxiousness and, and fear. But to just be still and know, I'm God. I've got you. You're okay. And trust in the Lord with all your heart.
Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reminder to just trust you, trust you, trust you, trust you in all circumstances. God, continue to do that work of faith in our life. Increase it, strengthen it, Lord. Help us in the areas that we struggle. And Father, help us to rest, to enter into your rest, the peace that the Lord gives us, not the peace of the world, the peace that overcomes the world. Lord, bless us now. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.